This week on The Futurists, Dan Jeffries. I don't think that there is anything in the world that does not benefit from more intelligence. There is nobody out there saying, I wish my supply chain was dumber and I wish drugs were harder to discover and cancer was more of a problem. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with the world traveler, Brett King, back on the ground. Hi, Brett. Good to see yeah, you. Yeah, back home. So that's great. Um, Super. Good, Nothing good like trip. flying back and getting to record a podcast first thing in the morning, but great to see you. Great that you're back. So I think the- I've got I've got think I've got a podcast recording um every day this week. So wow. you're prolific. There Speaking you of prolific, here comes a really, really bad transition. Speaking of prolific, our guest is a prolific writer, uh, an author who's been talking and writing about the future, about the future and about AI for quite some time. Um, and um, though he can go very technical, he's also created a, a tutorial for people called uh, Learning AI If You Suck at Math that has been wildly popular. Some of his posts have been read 5 million times. And um, today he is the managing director of the AI Infrastructure Alliance. And you can find him on Substack, where he writes the Future History uh, newsletter. So give a big welcome to Dan mm-hmm. Jeffries. Hey, Dan, welcome, so it's Dan. great to see you. We were introduced by a mutual friend. Uh, I was ventilating to that friend about the doom, uh, the, the doomsayers, <laughs> yes. uh, all the fear and, and, and uh, you know, anxiety. It seems to be getting drummed up about uh, artificial intelligence. When, you know, it's a new technology that presents all sorts of uncertainty and all sorts of change. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the world. Now, can you comment on that? Because I know you've written prolifically on that topic. <laughs> well, I mean, the end of the world, we've been we've been doing the end of the world for two million years, right? Uh, it's uh, whether it's uh, boulders from heaven or aliens or the gods. Steam-powered looms. Steam-powered looms, you know? That's right. Luddites, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, they, we, you know, the, the gods were going to kill us, the tides were going to kill us, everything's always going to kill us. Uh, and, you know, we've got this kind of doomsday cult rising up now uh, about artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence, it's strange, right? We like to think of ourselves as, as totally unique, the, the only sort of super intelligent creature on the planet. And so the idea that there's, uh, you know, another thing that could be intelligent is scary to some folks, and it's turned into, it's kind of jumped the shark uh, into let's bomb all the data centers, you know, kind of thing with, you know, Udowski's time article, you know, uh, humans have always, always with 100% uh, success rate adopted technology because it's not outside of themselves. It's, it's not outside of us. It is, it's a part of us. It's a reflection of us and we adapt to it and we adjust to it. It doesn't mean there's never any, any I don't know, any bumps in the road there are. But the idea that, you know, this time is different, I don't know, I'm going to go bet with like 2 million years of, uh, of history at this point. Maybe it is different, but maybe a boulder will come from heaven and smash the earth too. I think the probability is pretty low. You know, I think the thing that's different this time, it, it, you've already uh, said that the one thing that's different is, you know, we, we've never had to compete with another intelligence on the planet Um that's the equivalent of ours, you know. Um, I think we do a very poor job of recognizing the intelligence of other creatures that already exist on the planet, incidentally. But, um, but the 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 um, amplitude of change this time, if you like, um, 
comes for me from the effect it's going to have on conventional philosophy around things like capitalism and governance and so forth, right? Particularly, I mean, if you look at Adam Smith, you look at, um, you know, how we respond to supply and demand economics, you know, as demand for a product goes off, it's more workers get thrown into the mill, right? You know, that's how we've handled it. For the first time, we have a technology in, you know, in the last 300 years that is going to break that pattern potentially or significantly change it where we will no longer require human workers to produce things. And particularly if we start getting closer to AGI, although we don't need that, the potential for AI to disrupt a wide range of employment simultaneously is fairly significant. So I understand why people are freaking out, but is it though? Like but I mean having that's said the open that, question. Is is it though? Is is it what? Like is it is the potential for massive disruption just is it a fantasy or right. or is, is it, it or is it a real right. thing? Right. Okay. I mean and you know like I look around and, and whenever I have a problem trying to understand something, I try to ground it in reality. Right. And so I look around now and I've been reading, you know, robots take all the jobs. I mean, there's you just Google that job, you Google that story, right? And there's you know a million articles with the same title that could have been written by ChatGPT. Um, you know, so when I when I think about this, I go, okay, but what's happening in reality? I see, I don't know, a hundred million people using ChatGPT in two months. I see VCs pouring a ton of money into it. I see a whole bunch of new companies. I see a whole bunch of new academic, you know, economic activity, right? right. So the the, the job. Thing hasn't hasn't quite materialized. Now it could still materialize, but I would also add we've already destroyed all the jobs in history multiple times, right? You know, there it used to be one hundred percent of people worked in hunting, gathering, or agriculture. Now it's three percent of the planet, right? I know that uh, you know you flick on the light switch, and that unfortunately means that you know all the whale hunters are out of business, and you know, but I don't know that anybody is clamoring for. Or return to whale hunting so we can kill them and dig the white gunk out of their heads. Um, I'm sorry that the lamplighters are gone. But the thing is, like, this change doesn't happen instantaneously, right? Like, there's disruptions. The idea, though, that this is some sort of exponential, you know, explosion that could take off in a way that we couldn't fully understand, I suppose it's possible. Mm -hmm. But I see just as many trajectories in the future where the current technology is disrupted. Right. Like either we have a breakthrough in alignment or I don't know, auto GPT has a 15 to 30 percent error rate Yeah, right? in terms of its logic. You know, there's no guarantee that we can solve that problem tomorrow. Right. So I think, uh, there's certainly a chance for kind of an exponential explosion of recursive intelligence. But I don't know. It's like sometimes when I look at these things and they go, oh, you know, chat GPT is going to escape. I'm like, where's it going to escape to another eight way H100 cluster with eight terabytes of RAM, like a Kubernetes cluster and a vector database on the back end, Right. Like, I just don't understand. I don't even think the chat GPT thing is, is, is an issue. I, you know, I'm not sure that, um, that chat GPT is, or, or that underlying technology is what's going to lead us to, to AGI. There's a bunch of other, um, you know, types of, AI pursuits, you know, that are, that are, you know, currently in development that could, um, you know, potentially lead, lead down those paths. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think the, com the conversation around chat GPT is an issue. 
the hype right now is that the you know Microsoft released this art this paper research theoretically a scholarly research paper uh, talking about sparks of AGI and that's really what triggered this concern about art uh, about general right. intelligence. It first of all. I don't buy it. Secondly, even the people who wrote it, they said, look, here are some criteria, which you can you can object to. Like they set forth their criteria. That was very fair. Uh, and it says it doesn't meet all of them. It meets some of them. That's why they say it sparks of general intelligence. And so I guess the fear there, Dan, is that um, we're going to see some emergent behavior that we previously didn't assume. If the, if the model's large enough, we know that there are emergent behaviors. Yeah. And so some people are saying, well, could could general intelligence emerge? I think that's a pretty big leap or a fairly low probability. But just this week, there was an article with Nick Bostrom in the New York Times um, where he talked about uh, he talked about emergence, and he said, "Look, if you can accept the premise that there might be a small amount of sentience that 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 something could have a small percent, like a an animal." Would, would you say an animal has some self-awareness? Well, sure, you probably would go with that. Would you say a plant does? Well, no, but you know, it, it responds to light and dark. Well, maybe it does, you know, maybe. So if you can, if you can go, if you can follow that logic, then you might say, well, then these emergent systems might actually have some level of self-awareness, uh, you know, some small degree of sentience. What's your perspective on that? Because I think that that's where, that's where you get on that slippery slope where it's like, you can't just say it's zero probability. Well, it doesn't scare me. I mean, look, it, I think there's lots of different kinds of intelligence. I mean, we don't necessarily think of a squirrel as intelligent, but you know, try to keep that squirrel out of your garden and you'll realize how intelligent that squirrel is because it's optimized to get into your garden, right? So there are lots of different kinds of intelligence in the world. Uh, we're not the only creatures on the planet that have intelligence. We have different kinds of intelligence. We, and so that's one thing. The second thing is if you look at the emerging capabilities uh, and obviously, as the large language models have been scaling up, there's a great uh, graphic I've used where it kind of shows a tree blooming uh, that came from the Palm uh, paper by Google, and it like shows different emerging capabilities, you know, chains of reasoning, understanding a joke, etc. Generally, that's been more beneficial or complex emerging capabilities, right? So, yes, it's possible that we get a kind of artificial general intelligence out of these just massive scale. Right. And I've actually thought that one of the ways we possibly get there is some kind of connection to the connect on projects where they're trying to map the entire brain. And maybe we just have enough compute essentially to simulate it. Now, people have tried that before, but they tried it probably before we had a deep enough understanding. And at some point you just reverse engineer it. You look at it and go, well, that's lighting up over there. Like people worry about that because they go, oh, my God, it's a black box. I'm like, well, you're a black box. You don't know how you made decisions yesterday. I mean, we yeah. used. We yeah, don't know we how use, consciousness works today. And, and, right. And, but we use black boxes all the time. People made bread for 2,000 years. So they couldn't see yeast. They didn't know that what was happening below the thing. So, but they they understood the outcome. So I think when, when I see these kind of scary things from Bostrom and everything, the paperclip maxifier, I go, man, this is like a complete, this, this isn't scary. I mean, this is a complete like breakdown of critical thinking ability. Like this, it's like it's mm. basically an AGI Python script gone wrong. Like if if we have these complex emerging capabilities, wouldn't we have complex, you know, intelligence that emerged as well, more likely than in like a Python script gone crazy? Wouldn't we have other intelligences that are able to look at it as a watcher and, and contend with it, other human beings and augmentation and a million other things? that like interrupt the flow of like the, the, the stupid thing turning the universe into paperclips. It just, to me, I've looked at these things and I go, man, you, you start off with some really interesting ideas. Alignment is hard, right? Like 
you know, you don't necessarily have values and alignment and, and intelligence linked up. But at the same time, I look at it and go, yeah, but I mean, you're going to tell me that something that's super intelligent is going to go worry about maximizing paperclips. It's not just going to spawn a Python script to do it itself. I mean, I'm pretty smart. I probably would just spawn a Python script to do it myself <laughs> rather than spend all my time obsessing about it. So it's like, a good I, point. All these AI doom scenarios where, where the fear is a general intelligence that gets out of control or a super intelligence, they all require that super intelligence to be stupid in one unique way, like, yeah. like the paperclip maximizer, which for the people who are listening, that's a premise that was put out there that if you wrote an artificial intelligence that was optimized to generate paperclips, it would start to look at all the resources in the world, including human beings, as raw material for paperclips. Um, and then it would go out of control and just turn everything into a paperclip. So that's not really intelligent. That's kind of like a massive blind spot that you would call you know, artificial stupidity, I think. Uh, so, so all of these doom scenarios require that we have uh, that we have we assume some massive flaw or some massive blind spot. Now, to the extent that we're monkeying around with black boxes, we don't we do have the blind spot. That's a reality, right? We don't know yeah. uh, the emergent capabilities that we've seen so far with large language models. Those were unpredictable, including writing code. That was not something that was written. Nobody designed that into the system that emerged. The the one thing that is interesting with some of the AI that we've seen. Um, you know, and uh, if if you read Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger's book on the age of AI, they have some excellent examples of this, right? Where AI is already doing things outside of the bounds of human logic. Mm -hmm. So there is an element of, you know, we are getting some results out of this that we d didn't necessarily expect, and we can't explain exactly how how it happens in those algorithms, yeah. but we do see evidence of that already. You know, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's been well documented with chat GPT and now with GPT-4. Uh, new capabilities seem to arise all the time, like every week, which yeah, is exciting. scaled I mean, up. I mean, we've never had cool. a machine that can improve yeah. itself. We've yeah, never well, it, it, it's also cool to have something that competes with humans that makes us rethink our logic, you know. Um, and I don't necessarily think when we talk about alignment, um, Dan, you know, uh, you know, the AI pause letter, which everyone's been talking about, obviously, um, you know, uh, uh, from the Future of Life Institute, I think it is um, that that yeah. published that which, uh, you know, I've got some questions about that as well. But um, when we talk about alignment, it, it, um, you know, the, the the view that if we don't set some regulatory uh, guide rails, if we don't set ethical standards for AI to operate within, that we will never be able to claw it back. I don't necessarily agree with that either. Um, but, but this issue of alignment, it, you know, and if we are looking at the emergent uh, emergence of something that will compete with us in terms of intelligence, that isn't it reasonable to have AI, at least us attempt to get AI to work within some sort of ethical constraints that fits human values? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of people working on the alignment problem. We don't need a pause, right? Like DARPA's poured money into it. Anthropic is working on you know, useful things right now, reinforcement learning, reinforcement learning with... Uh, human feedback, reinforcement learning with AI feedback, where you have another model critiquing it uh, and like aligning it to a constitution. We're going to see more and more of, of these kinds of things. There's there's AI middleware coming that kind of keeps things on the guardrails. There's lots of stuff. It's not like suddenly people just started thinking about this. 
And I think like, we, well, we're probably going to need AI to regulate AI, actually. Uh, I right. think you're, you're right. Gonna, you're going to have watcher AIs, right? You're going to have right. watcher AIs. And see, and that's that's going back to even an earlier part before we go too far down the alignment thing. The other major mistake that I think a lot of these super intelligence gone crazy things make is what I call like the classic sci-fi problem, right? It's like in modern sci-fi, multiple people have a computer, right? It's not very interesting if one person has a cell phone, but in classic sci-fi, like one guy would have the submarine and there's no other submarine on earth, right? And that's not how technology develops. We're gonna have lots of different AIs. We're gonna have lots of different like minor models watching the other ones, right? You know, people go, oh my God, they're gonna use it to like write attack programs and malware. And I'm like, sure, we're also gonna have Pro AI programs that are like stopping the malware and request, you know, recursively fixing the code in real time, like faster than any human could, right? Plugging I mean, the hole. Awesome. This is how AI is used already, right? So already, right. Yeah. most people don't realize it because they're not consumer-facing applications of AI. But when you use search, um, when you're placing ads, when you're getting a recommendation on Netflix, um, when you're when using you your, your credit card, when your when your email is being screened for spam. You know, there's there's an AI at work in the background. The only thing that changed here is that with ChatGPT, they put it in front of people and you can talk to it. And that was definitely cool and definitely weird and new and startling. I haven't seen a job that it can replace yet. I've been studying ChatGPT and I'm trying to say like, okay, here's the job that is going to go. At first, I thought it'd be copywriters. But actually, the copy that it writes, like the advertising copy, it writes spam. And it's being used for that. So it'll generate a lot of spam, I guess. Um, You think, well, maybe legal writing can go. But at the end of the day, you're still going to need a professional attorney. So this might be something that helps that attorney generate drafts faster. Maybe it'll make law cheaper, but you're not going to replace that attorney with an AI anytime soon. And even coding, um, as you said earlier, you know, it, it generates code. That's incredible. And sometimes it works. Cool. But if you don't know what you're doing, you can't use that code because you have to double check. I think you even wrote a blog post about that where you, know, you have to go back and look at a bash script and make sure that it does what it says. You can test it. But that requires a human being who knows what he or she is doing. The, the top, you know, if you look at the top coders, and I'm, I'm, I'm basically, if if I fire up a company like I'm thinking of doing, I'm going to require the coders to use this stuff and do the high level thinking. I, I, we're going into a centaur era where you do a lot of the logic, and and I've read you know blog posts from some amazing you know coders written millions of lines of code, and they're doing the high level thinking. They and and, they, and to them they're getting five or six things done a day, right? They couldn't yeah. do a tool in the past because they couldn't explain it to their bosses because they didn't understand why you'd write a tool. Now they can write two tools a day. They can do two or three PRs, and at the end of the day, they're not blown out and exhausted. You know, one coder wrote that it was like chatting with a buddy half the day, right? And and you know, I look at it and I go. You know, I have a I have a, a friend who started writing a blog, and she speaks like five languages, right? And English isn't her native language, so a lot of times she would, you know, write it. She can think very well, but she would write it, and she, you know, have ChatGPT look at it, and and then or, or I would look at it. Well, you know, she wrote a blog post that was pretty good, and immediately me as a professional writer, I looked at it and knew what was wrong. You know, it was using like very essay-like word choices, like individual instead of people or we, right? The, the language, there were too many B-verb constructions. All the paragraphs were the same size instead of varying it, which makes the eye get tired. Now, that's like 20 years of experience of writing. I immediately said, go back, make it more colloquial, get rid of words like individual, tell it to use colloquial language. And, you know, she did that. And then immediately it came back with a better version. And and still like the punchline, I looked at it and was like, okay, wait a minute. It doesn't really, doesn't really slam at the end. Like, how can I make that work? So I think actually the most skilled people are going to have a level up and then people go, oh my God, mm -hmm. you know, a 10X programmer 
it's going to you know make the, the the junior programmer you know invalid no that's going to make the junior programmer 10x and the the super programmer 100x mm. right? yeah i think it's and, i think it's man plus machine right now rather than man yes. versus machine you know so people looking for that competitive commercial edge they're going to be using ai to you know reduce the cost of output um, you know, to expedite, uh, you know, performance, things like this. But, you know, we're not at the stage where AI is taking jobs wholesale. But, you know, we're also not preparing for, for that transition. You know, I agree with you somewhat, Dan, that, um, and this is what I'd like to get into after the break, but that, um, you know, we, we've always adapted. Um, but, you know, we have seen the pain of adaptation in the past. And, and the, the concern here is that the speed of which when this does, when it is ready for prime time and it is taking jobs, the speed with which it will be able to do that is, is the question, right? You know, what, what, uh, you know, we're not doing a lot to prepare that transition. If we do have large scale technology and employment because of AI, what's the government's policy on that? How are we going to deal with that? You know, do we ban AI? Do we come up with universal basic income? You know, what what are the what are the strategies? Uh, so, should we be planning for this disruption, or do you think it's just you know we just let it happen and and respond in real time? I mean, I think we we let it respond in real time, I and mean, we're talking about regulating something that doesn't exist. We're talking about a fantasy problem, and and I think this is a a, a change in our thinking in general as a society, right? Where we're like. Well, the kitchen knife manufacturer can't put out the kitchen knife unless they can guarantee nobody ever gets stabbed with it. Like, it doesn't matter that 99% of the people are going to cut vegetables with it, right? And we, we didn't used to think that way. Like, when they, when they did have a pause in genetics, they came up with a policy that said you actually had to, you know, prove harm. Today, we use this harm very loosely, right? It's like, hmm. if I stab you in the chest, that's harm. If I won't rent to you because of your skin color, that's, you know, that's harm, right? But if I if I make you know, off-color joke or, or insult your religion. That's not harm. You may not like it, but but that doesn't, that's not harm, right? So when I look at these kinds of things, I go, we have to be able to deal with these things in real time. We have to be able to prove that something actually happened. And a bunch of people writing a bunch of papers about something that's supposedly going to happen, you know, the population bomb was pretty sure we were going to run out of food, right? And and like current the current trajectory, it couldn't see the green revolution around the corner that changed the trajectory in the future. Right. And if we'd all prepared the regulation for the fact that like two million people were inevitably going to starve, that regulation would look pretty okay. absurd. That's a fair point. Yeah. That's a fair point. You know, now we're concerned about whether the human human race is gonna shrink out of existence, right? Because the decline <laughs> yeah, right. in population we're about growth. The demographic trends. So um, in the second half, we'll take this out uh, into the future a little bit more. We'll start to look at where things are heading. Before we do that, though, we like to get familiar with you. We like to ask you a series of short questions uh, that'll help our audience understand where you're coming from. So Brett's going to do that. He's going to ask you uh, five short questions. Now, I normally do, do this around sci-fi, Dan, but I'm going to make it a little bit more AI focused. So <laughs> what was the first time you remember being exposed to the concept of artificial intelligence uh, via TV books research? Uh, so, you know, college in the 1990s, and uh, I, I had a, a torrent of all these old papers, uh, the Perceptron and Lisp, and and uh, I was just I just started reading them because right? I was really into computers, and I, and I thought, gosh, there's something magic in here. I didn't know how to unlock it, 
I thought it was magic. And, you know, I read Neuromancer around that time as well. And uh, I just fell in love with the, with the concepts uh, of, of what artificial intelligence would look like. Probably even goes back a little further to the Asimov series when I, when I was a kid as well, right? But that was mostly a literary construct masquerading as artificial intelligence, but pretty cool one. What technology do you think has most changed humanity? No, I mean, there's no contest. The most important invention in history is printing press, right? It single-handedly leveled up the entire collective intelligence of humanity. It, you know, kicked off the scientific revolution so that we, you know, uh, we didn't think witches caused storms. We could actually figure out what caused storms. We didn't think, you know, uh, daggers would bleed next to the murderer. We could actually figure out things like fingerprints to catch murderers. So uh, to me, it's the most uh, profound uh, by a huge, huge uh, leap. Yeah, we had someone else say printing press recently as well. I couldn't remember who it was, but they they said the computer computers and the internet have just been an extension of that, which I think is interesting. Right. Um, name a futurist or an entrepreneur that has influenced you, and why? Uh, futurist or an entrepreneur? I don't know. There's so many uh, interesting folks who've kind of been around over time. I, you know, I don't know. It's Maybe, maybe Linus Torvalds. I just, I love open source. And, uh, you know, Red Hat was a massive part of my career in my life. I went to work in Linux when, when a recruiter said, you know, all the jobs are in Solaris. And I said, it won't be here in 10 years. And they looked at me like I had two heads. So I think open source has changed the game in terms of software and uh, almost, uh, you know, anything else in my lifetime. It's been super exciting. After the break, I want to ask you about open source and AI, but let's bookmark that for just a minute. Sure. And finally, what science fiction story is most representative of the future you hope for in respect to AI? Oh, I, you know, I've been writing a couple of short stories now because of the the answer to this question is none. Right? I generally think most of the stuff that's written about AI was written before AI exists, uh, with no no actual thing to tether it to reality. So they basically wrote either the robot buddy or the AI gone crazy or the homicidal maniac. So there's two villains uh, and it's basically just putting a, you know, a, a, an antagonist in a, in a metal body or, or a buddy in a, in right. a metal body, but there's no, there's no actual relation to, to reality. So I think we're, we're due for a series of stories that are now grounded in how artificial intelligence is actually developing. And I'd love to see, an explosion of new science fiction taking into account like how it's really developing. Awesome. Well, let's get onto it. That's it for the quick fire round. You're listening to The Futurists. We'll be right back after these this break and a word from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I am your host, Brett King, with uh, my co-host, Rob Tursek. Um, uh, one of the things we like to do is do a bit of a deep dive. So in respect to AI, one of the most vocal 
proponents slash opponents of AI and its uh, march of progress in recent times has been uh, none other than entrepreneur Elon Musk. So he just announced uh, some new moves in the space. Rob, what can you tell us about it? So you're right, Brett, when it comes to AI, uh, uh, Elon Musk's fingerprints are all over it. Uh, there were reports last week and over the weekend that Elon Musk is relaunching his business X um, as X.AI. And he did just purchase 10,000 GPUs, graphical processing units, for a new generative AI project inside of Twitter. And that's a, to put that in perspective, that's about how many uh, processors OpenAI uses to serve GPT-4. So it seems pretty clear he intends to create his own generative AI project. Um, and he has been conferring with uh, and actually hired one researcher from DeepMind uh, to build a new AI lab. So it seems like he's embarked on this. Now, what's interesting about that is Elon Musk has also been an outspoken critic of AI, as you just pointed out. Uh, for many years, he's he's been tweeting and saying in interviews that AI is dangerous. He said AI is like summoning the demon and claimed that it's worse than nuclear weapons. Uh, and in 2017, he told state governors that AI is the biggest risk we face as a civilization. Um, now, what's interesting about that is that Tesla, which is one of the many companies he's the CEO of, uh, Tesla uses AI. They have a very active AI development program. And during the last two years, uh, Tesla has been celebrating AI Day. So that's you know sort of like a, a thing they're very, very bullish on. Of course, uh, Tesla vehicles are equipped with autopilot, which is a kind of AI, an onboard AI system that processes data from eight different cameras on the uh, on the car to generate a real-time 3D model that can identify vehicles and pedestrians and so on. And sometimes that system doesn't work. Um, so, uh, you know, we also had some spectacular crashes with Tesla vehicles uh, that have been using or uh, relying on um, on autopilot. I can tell you that it, it, it's not ready for prime time yet in my Tesla yeah. model Y. In some respects, you could say for a guy who's been telling us that AI is dangerous for about 10 years, uh, his company is responsible for more deaths at the hands of AI than any other company on the planet. So he's sort of like number one right now in terms of killer AI. Um, now, interestingly, he's also one of the original founders and the original investor in OpenAI. Uh, he started that with along with uh, PayPal founders, uh, Peter Thiel and, um, and Reid Hoffman. Um, and in, in 2018 or around 2018, he tried to take over OpenAI. Uh, maybe it was 2017. Um, and it, it kind of bungled and the rest of the uh, founders rejected it. And so they pushed him out um, and um, they had already been upset with him because he had poached some of the people from OpenAI to work on Tesla's autopilot. Um, so he left. And at that point, um, he had made a pledge to contribute a billion dollars to OpenAI so that they could scale up the training of their large language model for the very first version of GPT-1. Um, but of course, when he left, he reneged on that promise. And that's what caused the new CEO, Sam Altman, to turn to Microsoft for funding and infrastructure support. Uh, so in a sort of a weird paradoxical way, he founded OpenAI and then by leaving caused OpenAI to go partner with Microsoft, which of course he's been complaining about ever since because he says, I named the company OpenAI, OpenAI and now it's a closed for-profit company that's working with the most evil monopoly on the planet. Um, so there's a, there's a complicated story behind all of that. And then um, in addition, so it should have been his that, monopoly instead of theirs. Well, so this is the thing, you know, it's always, there's always a couple different angles and they always seem to like conflict when it's, when it's about Elon Musk. So in addition to all that, he also was one of the most prominent signers of that famous petition uh, from the Future of Life Institute, but that's not all. 
he's also one of the people who funded the Future of Life Institute. And he's a longtime uh, supporter of Nick Bostrom. Nick Bostrom, who is the founder of FLI and also of uh, the Future of Humanity Institute at, at Oxford. Um, and in fact, Elon Musk introduced uh, Nick Bostrom to Sam Altman at OpenAI. So like, he's kind of the spider in the middle of the web. So a lot of people have speculated that- So what's reason- it all mean? Well, what they speculated mean? that the reason he wrote that letter, the reason he signed that letter, was basically to buy a six-month pause catch, so that Twitter's yeah, startup up. could yeah. catch up to open AI. Now, it's not just me that's saying that. His longtime friend and PayPal co-founder, Reid Hoffman, said that. He said, uh, he sort of mused out loud, and he did an interview recently, and he said, um, they asked him about Musk's uh, reason for, for signing that letter, since he's already using AI in many ways. And, and, and uh, Hoffman said, I think some of it's a little bit less well-intentioned, like everyone else slow down so that I can speed up. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's Reid Hoffman's take on on X AI and uh, and Elon Musk's involvement. Well, he knows he knows Elon letter. pretty well. That's for sure true. <laughs> and so, with that in mind, I was thinking it might not be a bad idea for us to just go back and recap that letter, because uh, Dan, that's when you and I were introduced, and when that letter came out. So at yeah. that point, about two thousand people had signed this petition asking for a six month pause. Today, as of recording, uh, about twenty six thousand people have signed it. And of course, it's made zero impact in terms of slowing any company down. If anything, the companies are rushing. Just today, this weekend, uh, Google has been announcing that they're doing everything they can to catch up to Microsoft. So it appears like we've got an arms race underway. Anything we need to be concerned about there with the arms race? Are these big companies likely to suspend their AI uh, safety regulations or their their uh, ethical AI parameters? Are they going to just rush ahead recklessly and throw safety to the wind? I mean, well, I mean, so there's a there's a lot to unpack there. I would say, you know, I tweeted the same thing that multiple CEOs, not just Tim, had, uh, you know, uh, tweeted or, or had signed it in bad conscience, right? That they just like slow down the competitors so they can catch up because they were training their own LLMs, right? Um, and 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 I go back to you know, a, a kind of a great person theory, right? As well, when you think about things like you know, how do you how do you assess someone like Alexander the Great? Like, he's a mass murderer, or did they did did he unite all of the world and like encourage uh, different cultures to interact and like you know his soldiers to marry folks from different sides and like not murder the populace, or whatever? The answer is both, right? It's like you know, great people don't kind of fit into these boxes. So he it's, it's a bit like Logan Roy or whatever in Succession. It's like is he is he a horrible pompous son of a bitch? Is he also a person who like gets things done in an amazing way, puts together tremendous deals as a person who, you know, plays both hands to get what he wants. Yeah, that's what that's what singularly powerful people do. So so nothing if you if you frame Elon from that perspective, it all it makes perfect sense, right? Like you play all the sides that you want. Now get it back to the letter. Uh, it has zero impact. No one's about to slow down uh right now and do it. And I think the other thing is I don't think people are slowing down their safety regulations. Again, go look at like the, they spent at Open Eye, they spent six months, you know, getting the model to be, hey, they had red teams on there, right? Yeah. They had, you know, people like working to get the model more aligned. It's like a 146 page paper, right? That I read through where they, you look at the early things that it could do, right? Where it would, they were, they, they tried it to get it to, I don't know, say something, you know, say something anti-Semitic, right? But that doesn't get picked up by Twitter and it would ha- gladly give you that or where you could buy illegal guns. And they they work for all these things and they're constantly upgrading the system yeah. to kind of deal with I mean, with arguably that's things. why they made it open to the public because we're all beta testing it. You, you cannot fix things in 
uh, in Ivy Tower. This is I don't know how we've gotten to this concept that you can't that you can fix things outside of the real world. Like we put refrigerators out there, and then we realize sometimes the gas leaks and they blow up. That's a tragedy. It's horrifying. We're not happy about that. But you don't know that's going to happen until it happens. OpenAI spent a bunch of time worrying that it was going to be used for political disinformation. And it's been used for that about 0% of the time. They didn't see spam, right? They didn't see that coming. And that's been what happened. But that when, when they put it out there, that is like, the, you know, humans are infinitely creative. We find exploits in, in political systems, in computer systems. We're, we're, we're massified. They also didn't know what people were going to use it for positively. They didn't know anybody wanted to code with these models until they saw people coding with it, right? So the thing is, you have to put things in the real world. And yet, Today now we we go oh it's got to be perfect or you can't do it you know again I, I take this idea of of self driving cars like we talk about okay the Teslas have have crashed or whatever look I ask people how how many self driving car deaths are going to be acceptable oh you know zero like okay cool humans are absolute terrible drivers they kill one point three five million people on the road every year worldwide let's stop and humans 50, driving cars then yeah right exactly. fifty million people are injured yeah. so if it cut that by half. You know, or 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 down to a right. quarter. That's a million people walking right. around. We apply with a different kids. standard to the AI. Like the AI has to be perfect or nothing, right? Right. Uh, okay, but but the there is a group that is very concerned about something that we may consider low probability. The the three of us might consider low probability, mm -hmm. but they say no matter how low the probability, it's something that we all have to take very seriously. In fact, for them, it's the number one concern. The group I'm talking about is the long termists. That's what they're mm -hmm. usually called. Uh, often Nick Bostrom is considered to be you know, kind of the, the ringleader or the, or the brains behind it. He's the author of Superintelligence, a professor at, um, at Oxford, uh, studying ethics of AI, among other things. And this group is really the group that's behind this petition. And their view is that we can't be messing around with a technology that if it works, if it escapes, if it develops superintelligence, a lot of ifs, but there's a non-zero probability there. So it could happen. It might happen. And they're saying if it happens, then the most likely outcome is that it's going to exterminate humanity, right? This is uh, probably best expressed in that Time Magazine article by Eliezer uh, Yudkowsky, who is a part of that group. And he said that the letter didn't go far enough. So he refused to it's sign such it. A, it's such a human emotion, though, applying that logic to AI, right? Well, let me direct it at Dan. I want to hear what Dan has to say, because Dan, tell us a little bit about the this perspective from the Future of Life Institute, Nick Bostrom, and Eliezer Yudkowsky. Now, I think, you know, I think they use a lot of, like, the, the even sort of the blog less wrong comes from a critical thinking concept, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that in the... They kind of utilize That's a lot Yudkowsky's of... blog for the folks right. who are listening. Uh, less right. wrong. Right, so he, it, 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 and that comes from the concept of like, you, you make a less wrong choice. So like the way that you think about things is like, if I'm doing a diet, I plan out all the healthy eating things and I count calories, but it, it, it inevitably fails because it's boring and it, it's a tedious, it saps the fun. So a less wrong choice is going to the, you know, going to the grocery store or going to, you know, the, going to the restaurant and just scratching off the burger and the fries and the, you know, and getting yourself a salad or, you know, and, and putting the dressing on the side, right? That's a less wrong choice, right? That's how you get closer. You can maintain that easier. So they've kind of co-opted that language and used a lot of that critical thinking, but in, in many ways, and, and sometimes I read less wrong and a lot of the guest posts are good, but um, they kind of co-opted this language of, you know, clear thinking and corrupted it in kind of a Jonestown-y way, right? It's like, you know, there's a way that it's like, we're going to get to this thing. And it's like, the more you study monsters, 
Right, the more you start thinking that monsters exist, it's like you study the dark arts and you're suddenly mad eye moody looking around the corner all the time, right? Like my father always said, what you focus on expands, right? So you keep focus, it becomes this inevitability. We're going to destroy it. But I think it's just based on a lot of weird sort of lazy assumptions. Like they, they talk a lot about these kind of, you know, these really logical scenarios, but the more you dig into them and peel them apart and expose them to the light, they don't make a lot of sense. Like that, that example of the paper cut maximize earlier, it sort of assumes that there's no other thing to interrupt the trajectory or that we don't have any, any additional kind of development along the way. It's like, try to explain a, uh, you know, an, a web developer to an 18th century farmer. You can't do it because there's like 15 other technologies that develop that you can't see. So it's easy to imagine destruction. It's very hard to predict the, you know, the trajectory of these things. And so I think that the probability is, is, immensely low. And I think a lot of the reasoning is wrong too. When you look at the paper that came out that said, oh, you know, it's selfish species is the nature of evolution. I'm like, really? I'm like, you know, humans are the most collaborative species of like all times, right? Like we, you know, we, uh, you know, we feel a kinship with a hundred million other people, 200 million, a billion other people have nothing to do with us. It's called a nation state, right? Who, you, you know, you might not give the time of day to, but we take that very seriously. You work in a company, how many of those people do you actually like? Let's be honest, right? You probably have two or three friends there. The other ones you wouldn't give the time of day to, but you're all working towards a collective thing. And, and then they go, oh, well, other species don't collaborate. And I go, Gee, you know, I saw, you know, there's a, 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 a like a shrimp that digs out like a, a, a hole in the ocean and the goby fish goes into it. And the goby has great eyes and the fish kind of, you know, the, the shrimp cleans out the, the thing every day and and it's it's kind of blind and the goby fish acts as a guard and they both share this thing together. So look, collab, you know, it's it's based on these sort of weird, faulty assumptions. Yeah. And and for me, it's like, I don't know, man. I, I mean, are we gonna spend all of our time thinking about this and then we're gonna miss out on all but, the benefits of like it, you know, fair. better. No, no, I agree. I agree absolutely no with all of that, Dan. But um you know, there is there is a need for a new set of regulations around AI, just as there's been a, a, a need for data privacy regulations in recent times because of the abuses of, you know, uh, people like or organizations like Cambridge Analytica. We'll yeah, get a pop know. up in front of all the AIs, like, because that's definitely fixed the thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, but, 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 but some, so some we of what you're need... was, was raised by uh, there was one group that was very vocally against this letter, even though the letter aligned with a lot of what they had originally recommended. And the group I'm referring to is DAR, um, which is run by um, Timnit Gabru. And she was a former uh, ethics researcher, AI ethics researcher at Google. And in kind of a, a story, some may recall from a few years back, uh, was fired in the clumsiest way by Google. Yeah, yeah. And then her boss, uh, Margaret Mitchell, was fired just a few months later for similarly clumsy reasons. And the story just kept going on and on, made Google look really bad. No one really knows exactly what happened. There's more to the story. Um, but at any rate, uh, one of the reasons why Tim Gaber was fired from Google is that she published a paper uh, called Stochastic Parrots. And it's about these large language models. Um, and many of the criticisms that she made now, looking back, because that paper is about five years ago, looking back, that actually was pretty accurate. Uh, her for, her forecast or her analysis was pretty accurate. Um, and so it's a little weird. Again, it's a little weird that Google fired her. Um, but at any rate, she came out and was very critical of this Future of Life, um, our um, Future of Life Institute petition. 
because she said all the attention and all the focus is going to go to this tiny possibility, this minute possibility of a super intelligent AI that's malevolent, that destroys humanity and so on. And now that's going to sort of redirect resources or distract people from the real issues. And what she feels are the real issues are the very real tangible uh, negative impacts, not just of AI, but of algorithms uh, that are prevalent in society today. And she'll point to things like systemic racism or discrimination or the ability, you know, some people can't get um, uh, insurance or car insurance or a car loan based on the zip code they live in because that's correlated thanks to some algorithm uh, or something in their credit report that's correlated to the area where they live or their zip code. Uh, and so she points out that this kind of discrimination and unfairness already exists and it's algorithmically reinforced and it should be getting the attention of legislators and regulators. And it's not. And it's because of all this doomsaying uh, that's worrying us about this sort of sci-fi scenario, this very low probability scenario in the future that we're not uh, directing enough attention to the very real but mundane. Just issue. the problem of integration, right? And and the problem of equality and fairness and equal justice. And also there's a gigantic inequality issue uh, too, because it's like, who has access to these tools? Uh, who's going to get the benefit from these tools? There is going to be an economic boost. So I guess the point I'm making there is that, you know, we've, we talked briefly about this group that, ref, that is referred to as the long-termists or the, the philosophy, philosophy, philosophy is called long-termism. But I think there's a different group uh, that's worth paying attention to, led by Tim Nick Gibru. And that is, the, you could call them the short-termists. They're the people who are focused on the issues of AI right now, today, that are real, that are going to be in the financial industry primarily, or the insurance industry, uh, where algorithms are deciding someone's fate, and unbeknownst to them, it could be a kind of like racial or economic redlining that's occurring. Uh, so I guess there's two different perspectives on that letter, but that letter ended up generating so much controversy and yet it achieved nothing because here we have an arms race and it's not just Google and Microsoft who of course are in a death struggle over the future of search, the largest computing category in the world. But in the month of March, more than 150 other apps were launched and now I want to come back to that question right before the break I raised, uh, which is the combination of open source and artificial yeah. intelligence should be a kind of turbo booster. And it might be the thing that prizes this technology away from those giant companies. What's your take on that possibility? I love open source. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer of it. I went to work at Red Hat. Like I said, when there were 1,400 people, uh, I was there for 10 years. Um, I, I'm a big believer in it. And you know, a lot of times we look at artificial intelligence. I agree with it that that long-termism or or short-sightedism, as I call it, um, is um, is kind of distracting us from sort of real issues. Whatever we think the real issues are, there's a lot of them, right? I mean, I can think of ones outside of just that was um, very a U.S. sort of centric based one, but there's other ones too. Right? I mean, think about if we are good with alignment, you know, can a totalitarian regime, you know, utilize that or the way it's kind of used to, you know, keep track of you know populations and those kinds of things. There's a lot of you know potential negatives. When I look at sort of open source, now this is the other thing you've seen you push back from like corporations or governments on the open source, these things are too powerful, blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, when I look at something like Linux, though, right, the, the long-term possibilities or the, or the things that have done, that it has done has been wonderful, right? And now Linux is used to attack things, right? It's used to do 
you know, uh, sneaking in and attacking people and penetration testing and all, all this kind of stuff, right? It's been used for malware. It's been used for all kinds of things. It's also been used in pretty much every supercomputer on the planet. You know, if Microsoft had been successful at destroying it in the old days, they would have destroyed their new business model because 90% of their cloud runs on it, right? Um, their supercomputers run on it, right? OpenAI runs on it. Um, you know, it's in every edge router. It's in, you know, everything. Right. So and should so, we have open source AI? Because the folks at Open AI are against it. They're actually going the opposite direction. They're going for more closed. Money given the name. Right. Yeah, I, I completely disagree. I mean, I think when you look at the research that's coming out right now with people, uh, you know, being able to find different ways to align it or adding adapters, uh, you know, to to the different large language models, which makes them you know, faster to fine tune and easier to to align in a lot of ways and give them new capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are coming out of the open source community and they're going to trickle back in. And you're, you're, you're already seeing that. You see like with stable diffusion, right. all the communities are blending together models, 15 different models, and suddenly they're yeah. as good as mid-journey. You see all the research papers taking these things and utilizing them. So look, I, I always feel that open wins out in the long term. It might lose in the short term. It could be in an era of closed. But I think in the long term, the benefit of being able, everyone being able to poke and prod it in and, and inspect it is more beneficial than a few p- folks having the keys to the kingdom. So do you think some of the doomsaying and the fear and gloom mongering, do you think some of that is, is like a, a coded argument in favor of closed source and big companies basically saying the only companies that we can trust to handle this stuff because it's like kryptonite? Are these very large established tech companies? Self-regulating companies. Yeah, the so-called self-regulating companies. It seems like a self-serving argument. Yeah, I mean, there's look, there's always perspectives embedded in every argument, right? And one of them is that, you know, we can't have open source because people are too stupid or too or too dumb or too dangerous to be able to do these kinds of things. And so we have, you know, we're going to have these kind of trusted center things, right? That that are there, you know, it's like, well. You mean like the people who are trusted to like keep our credit card data private and leaked half the United States or whatever? Like so, and then the problem with this kind of this perspective of basically focusing on this centralized trust is that it's an oxymoron, right? Yeah. It's like once that's embedded into the system and it and that one entity that you put in charge of the trust fails your trust because it's not it's not a fixed thing. Trust is a moving concept, right? It's the people there. If I, you know, if I stack the EPA with a bunch of people who think environmental protection is nonsense, I've destroyed the concept of the EPA. If I, if so, if I have incompetent people in that trusted entity, suddenly that entity is no, no longer useful and you can't rip them out of the system. So I favor the openness. Mm-hmm. I favor that kind of ability for lots of people to be able to poke and prod at these things and build the technologies and also build the guardrails. And, and the guardrails work is happening in the open source community as well. And I think it's going to trickle yeah, back. Yeah, that to the could be part source. of the solution, actually. So take That's us right. out to the future. Talk about recombinant artificial intelligence, where let's say it's more open. Uh, there are models, there already are models out there that people can use. And let's say that we're able to compress the language down so that you can run the AI on a smaller set of machines. You don't need $10 billion to on set up. On your smartphone. Maybe. Well, that's what's coming, right? So can you take us out to that future, Dan? Tell us what we might expect or what you imagine might be kind of exciting about a future where this is more democratized and more recombinant. Yeah, I think we're going to have gigantic super intelligent models. I think we're going to have like medium, you know, medium sized models and then tiny models at the edge. They're all going to be communicating. I don't think that there is anything 
in the world that does not benefit from more intelligence. There is nobody out there saying, I wish my supply chain was dumber and I wish drugs were harder yeah. to discover and cancer was more of a problem, right? So like, to me, I see this kind of like embedded intelligence in every little aspect. You've got a million researchers. I don't see all the jobs disappearing. I just see an acceleration. I see the WhatsApp effect, right? Where like it used to take a thousand engineers. To, now you can do it in 50, but it doesn't mean you have less software. It means you have more. So I think we're going to have more companies. We're going to have more varied jobs, or we're going to have some people who don't even need to work. And I think you're going to have this kind of ambient intelligence everywhere, right? Small models, huge models, like gigantic models. They're all going to be able to communicate. There'll be protocols. There'll be defenses. There'll be watcher AIs. There'll be regulation that's in there. But to me, every single aspect of our entire life is going to be upgraded intelligence. Like the packages are going to be smart. You know, they're going to know where they're going. They're going to know how to reroute or call out for help. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be augmenting like your old software tools with intelligence. And, and maybe it has a crappy interface. It doesn't matter anymore because you're just going to talk to it. And mm -hmm. it's going to take care of that crappy interface for you. And it's going to speed up everything from, you know, drug discovery to, um, you know, material science to, to everything. And if we're lucky, we're probably going to have some breakthroughs that lead us to kind of things that we can teach very quickly through mimicry, the way we teach children. You can take them out in the backyard, throw them the, the, the baseball, they're probably going to figure it out in a couple of weeks. They may not go to the pros, but they're going to be able to understand it. I think we're, people are working on things like that. You already see that with people designing awesome. games, right. people who yeah. don't write code, who are designing games with chat GPT, they say, no, not like that. More like that. They're using natural language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the game, the, the GPT rewrites the game for them, right? In real time, which is kind of astonishing. I want to come right. back to your point about uh, so, uh, supply chain, because uh, supply chain has been a focus of mine for many years. And it's it's not smart, you know. It's a dumb supply chain. There's still people yeah. with clipboards and and walking yeah. around with paper and uh, and checking items off of a list. Now, um, there have been many attempts to apply blockchain to supply chain, and they've mostly failed. Uh, hundreds mm -hmm. of attempts. And one of the reasons for that is that supply chains are closed. They're not open by design. You know, Walmart doesn't want an open supply chain. They're they're quite content to dominate the one that they have right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so blockchain and you know, a um, an open ledger doesn't really work in that circumstance. Um, that said, there is a big effort underway that was accelerated during the pandemic to automate the supply chain, to apply robotics, uh, automated systems all the way through from factories to trucks to you know ports and uh, even container ships. My thinking has been for a long time that blockchain is not for people. Blockchain is for the AIs, for one mm -hmm. automated right. system to hand over to another automated same system. As, same as digital money or CBDCs and yes. you know, tokens. Are so money, so money is just one thing that's being transferred, yeah. right? But there could also be pallets of goods or cars or ships and containers and right. so on. And so, you know, for the human beings, these are black boxes. We don't actually understand how the AIs work, right? So we can't audit the thought process of the AI. So we need a verifiable way to look and say, okay, but did the goods actually get transferred and on what date? And that's where the blockchain fits in. So blockchain in this scenario is for the AI and you know, it's a way for the humans to govern the AI. I'm not quite sure that scenario is fully baked. What do you think of that? What's your reaction when I share that idea? I mean, I, I've always felt like maybe blockchain has been one of the most disappointing technologies for me because I've been a fan of it for a long time. And I felt like we, we've missed opportunities for like decentralized identification and we spent you know, we don't even have things like, you know, when you call your bank and, and you need to reset your password, you could automate that protocol of like, what's your dog's name and all that to reset your local wallet. We don't even have that kind of stuff. And I was writing about that 
five, six, seven years ago. And so it's been disappointing to see like yet another clone of a coin. I think that people haven't leveled up to thinking about it as a protocol and as a way to do decentralized trust. Uh, and I think that really, that decentralized trust machine in a hostile environment where people don't agree, uh, it's a way to come to a consensus. And I think that that is the exciting part of it. I like the idea of machines being able to communicate to machines. And, and I like them being able to verifiably ex extend information. I think we will eventually see uh, good uses of the blockchain, right? In terms of like, maybe with photos, like as soon as it comes off your camera now, we're going to need, you know, an, a stamp on there that goes to the blockchain yeah. instantaneously because you're going to need to be able to say, this is a verified photo versus- Generated by something. a human. Right. Yeah, that's right, right. Right. You know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think that we're going to start to see real new uses for it. It's going to be exciting. Um in my, but when going back to just the you know the supply chain, we are going to see artificial intelligence baked into that at every step, um, from the robotics to like the tracking of things. It doesn't have to even be open for that to be the case, right? There are huge companies that serve you know the shipping industry, and quite frankly, giant container ships are already basically automated. They're, they're skyscrapers floating on their side, and the you know that they got like. 10 people on them who barely touch the controls, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's a, you you mentioned this earlier that there's a whole bunch of things that, that are basically artificial intelligence. And there's a joke in artificial intelligence that once it works, we don't call it artificial intelligence anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so, it's software. Yeah, that is okay. Just software. Software. <laughs> yeah, it's just software. It's fine. Or an algorithm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You, know, you talk All to right. your phone, Fantastic. that's AI, but it works. Well, great. Fun talking to you, Dan, today. Thank you for joining us. Well, this is, uh, this is yet another episode of The Futurists. It's been a great pleasure to have Dan Jeffries on. Dan, what's what's the best way, way for people to find you on the web? Uh, Twitter, uh, Dan underscore Jeffries, the number one. If you don't put the number one, you're going to find someone who studies the asexual reproduction of tree frogs. Uh, nice. So and that so could be interesting. It's he, he's an interesting fellow. Dan Jeffries and I have had a couple of fun exchanges. Dan underscore Jeffries one or uh, Future History Substack is probably the best way to see my writings uh, and the thing I keep most updated. That's cool. Yeah, I found you on uh, on Medium and elsewhere. Uh, I think also Hacker Noon, but the most recent stuff. These really deep dives you've been doing into AI, uh, quite interesting. And also you, you share a lot of technical acumen. Uh, you'll find that on Dan's Substack, which is Future History. Well, thanks for joining us. This has been a fun episode, and we enjoy this topic very much. We'll be sure to have you back for some more Future History in a, in a future episode. Um, and folks, we want to thank the people who have been uh, helping us make this show possible. That's Kevin Hershon, our engineer, and Lisbeth Severns, our producer, the whole team at Provoke Media. Uh, they've been very supportive of this show. And... Um, I want to thank our audience for listening. Uh, thank you very much. We have been getting superb feedback uh, from people who are listening to the show. It's growing nicely. That's been great fun to watch. And in fact, yeah, uh, we're going to hit 50K downloads this month. So, yeah, yeah awesome. that's awesome. The introduction yeah. to Dan actually came from someone who uh, I was talking to about the show and said, You should talk to my friend Dan. So, that's how this came about. So, we love that kind of feedback here and we welcome it. So, please reach out to us on social media. Let us know. If there's a question we should be asking or an expert we should be talking to. And um, in the meantime, we will be back next week with another futurist. And until then, Brett, I'll see you in the future. <laughs> well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast. 
for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.